This is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient. And on today's show, I have a conversation with Professor Richard Jolly of Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. He's also the co-founder of Stokes Jolly. That's an organizational and executive consulting practice. People in the legal industry, hedgehogs or foxes? Today's guest, Northwestern professor Richard Jolly, explains that many people working legal are probably more likely to be hedgehogs. That's because a lot of times they have traits like high skepticism and aren't always that motivated to embrace change. These traits reminded Professor Jolly of an essay that was written in the 50s by philosopher Isaiah Berlin. It was called The Hedgehog and the Fox. The title, Hedgehog and Fox, is a reference to a saying from ancient Greece that a fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one big thing. Professor Jolly explains that legal subject matter experts are like hedgehog. They have deep expertise in one area, but in a rapidly changing world, the ability to adapt like a fox is increasingly important. He also explains that the pandemics accelerated the pace of change and that law firms need to be open to these changes to survive and thrive. Specifically, he points out that education and training of young lawyers is more important now than it ever was because of the remote work situation we find ourselves in and also because of the way the new generation of lawyers think about their careers. They want to practice differently than their older colleagues. Specifically, Professor Jolly's research has shown that most new lawyers don't plan on spending a whole career at a single law firm, nor do they want to spend every waking hour working. So, with that in mind, if you're a lawyer out there commanding an hourly rate in excess of a thousand bucks an hour, you might be thinking, all this talk about change, that's all it is, is just talk. But if it ain't broke, why do I need to fix it? Professor Jolly says to that that's short term thinking and that no matter what, times are changing and law firms need to think more long term. Sure. Things might be working fine just now, but he draws about a quote from hockey great Wayne Gretzky. He was once asked by journalists how he scored so many goals, and he said, well, everyone else skates to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck will be. So Professor Jolly has an interesting backstory before getting into teaching, first at the London Business School and now at Northwestern. Before he did that and before he got into consulting, he did stints as a chef and also as a psychoanalyst. I actually started off life as a professional chef. Oh, wow. So I trained in a Michelin-starred restaurant in the southwest of England as a chef, which is not a classic route into consulting and uh, academia. And then I did a whole bunch of things. I think I've had nine careers. So I've done a whole bunch of things, most of which were, you know, just doing it because I was passionate about it and wanted to spend some time learning about it. But the first sort of proper job, you might say, is, as you say, a brand manager at Unilever in consumer goods. But the simple thing is that I kept getting fired. <laughs> when I say fired, they basically came to me and said, Richard, your performance is not where he uh, expected to be. <laughs> so uh, here's where we want you to improve. And you have three months, and then we'll review your performance. And clearly, if nothing changes, there will be a formal process, which basically means, you know, time to go. So I said, OK, and left. And uh, because the things they're asking me to work on are not the things I wanted, uh, I really wanted to work on. And... I'm one of those people who, if I'm not motivated, I can't fake it. My performance collapses. So I left uh, uh, marketing, uh, and then I went to work doing strategy in an ad agency. And after a year in a completely mad environment, and one day I must write a book about it, it was literally mad. As in mad men? <laughs> well, mad men in the literal <laughs> sense here, that uh, my boss actually was, uh, of course, sectioned in the UK about six months after I left, and he basically um, could no longer work because of his mental health oh, wow. and has been... Locked up in an institution ever since. After a year of being there, they said, Richard, your performance is not where I expected <laughs> to be. And it was like, okay, time to go. Uh, and then I went and trained as an executive coach. 
And after a year of that, uh, my boss said, well, Richard, um, I am firing you. So at this point, <laughs> it was like, well, why do I keep getting fired? Now, the simple answer with hindsight is I was just in the wrong job. But what about the executive coaching? Why did they let you go there? Because obviously you're good at it because you've been doing it for a while now. <laughs> I think that's uh, because I was good at it. And I was the apprentice to my boss. Put it this way. He's a sole trader rather than uh, a team player. Yeah. He fired me just to the point I was starting to make him money and uh, starting to really figure out how to do it. But part of that coaching process was I started an MBA part-time at London Business School. And it was an astonishing experience. It, it changed my life. I just loved it. I was so stimulated. Every class for me was just a privilege being there. And I remember sitting there thinking, I want to do that job down at the bottom of the room rather than being here in the auditorium. And so within uh, weeks of finishing my MBA, I started doing some teaching. Uh, and within six months, uh, I was on the faculty and I worked my way up to, uh, to professor yeah. there and was at London Business School for 22 years before moving here to the US four years ago. But at what point do you start your consulting firm Stokes and Jollies? That's in the 90s, right? That was in uh, late 90s. And basically when my boss fired me from the coaching role, I was doing my MBA part-time and I had no job. So I thought, well, I'll set up my own consulting business. So I called it Richard Jolly and, and Associates. And I've since realized that anyone who says they are and associates is in their bedroom, <laughs> uh, as I was. But I set up my consulting firm and I tried to go out there and get clients. And I was using what I'd been learning the weekend on my MBA to try and go out and get clients. So my professors loved me because I'd say, hey, I use your strategy framework and I got a piece of business from it. Thank you so much. So they were thrilled. And uh, really, quite quickly, uh, the business took off. And within a year, I met my business partner, John Stokes, who was uh, one of the most famous psychoanalysts uh, in the UK and is uh, truly, we're still a very much a uh, partnership to get today, over 20 years later. And it's been, you know, an absolutely fantastic uh, collaboration. And so what I do is I really manage my academic role and my consulting responsibilities very much in a hopefully synergistic way because the stories I get from consulting and experiences really inform my teaching in academia. And uh, clearly, having a, an academic grounding means that as a consultant, I'm not just saying, here's what I think. You know, it is grounded in empirical uh, research uh, and hopefully gives me that uh, credibility, which in the legal profession is particularly important because uh, when you're dealing with partners in top law firms, if they don't uh, respect you, if you don't have that credibility, then you basically, uh, um, they're just going to get their phones out and just ignore <laughs> you. Going back to the days before the executive coaching and consulting in London Business School, was there anything that you took from the firings, from your prior, less than successful prior attempts at careers in your consulting practice that has really helped you? Is there something you learned back in the day that you use nowadays when you're consulting with these leaders at, at firms and organizations? Yeah, it's a great question, Chad. And the simple answer is I can literally point to every single one of these experiences and say stuff that I use on a daily basis. So for example, being a chef, the ability, you know, when you're in the kitchen, you've got to operate, uh, you've got to work very, very fast because, you know, if the entrees have got to go out for table six, the entrees got to go out for table six. You can't say, so sorry, uh, uh, I'm not ready yet. Uh, and so the ability to work fast and the ability to multitask, to keep lots of plates spinning, not literally spinning and in the kitchen at the same time is a really critical skill. Probably of all the experiences or the training and, and uh, roles I had, I trained and worked as a psychotherapist. And that's probably the most useful wow. thing in terms of my consulting work, because what I find in my consulting work is that there's a very consistent pattern here, which is 
in people's lives, in the psychotherapy world, but also as an organizational consultant, my experience is that people kind of know what they should be doing. Yeah, so all of us know we should be eating more healthily, taking more exercise, getting more sleep, not losing our temper, all these sort of things that uh, some of us occasionally, particularly uh, uh, since the pandemic, perhaps have been doing a little bit of. So we know what we should be doing. We're just not doing it. So telling people what they should be doing is, in my experience, almost completely irrelevant because it doesn't make any difference. So, you know, telling someone they should give up smoking because it's bad for them is, you know, is just uh, going to lead to what we call the backfire effect. And the backfire effect is if I give you data that is true, that is evidence-based, but it doesn't fit with your belief systems, it backfires. And what happens is you just dig even more deeply into existing beliefs and behaviors. And so this is the thing, is that we know what we should be doing, we're just not doing it. So the question is at the core of uh, the, my therapeutic work in the old days, but now in my organizational work, both coaching senior executives, but also obviously doing organizational um, consulting, is a question that really I'm obsessed by, and it's why I wake up before my alarm almost every day, uh, which is the question of why aren't we doing the things we know we should be doing? Now, that is a fascinating question. And uh, in the legal world, it is more relevant, I think, than probably any other professional or sector yeah. that, uh, that I consult to. So that's really um, one of the key things that I got from my work as a psychotherapist. Uh, but really, all of these experiences are ones where I can point to stuff I learned. I um, worked as a ski instructor in France for a while. And um, when you've got somebody on a ski slope, there are 20 things that you need to tell them about how to improve their skiing. But my experience is, particularly when you're on a ski slope and you're still learning to ski, it can be slightly stressful, to say the least, as an environment, and there's a risk of hurting yourself. So what I found absolutely fascinating as a ski instructor is, what's the one thing you need to tell this person to help them improve? Because if you tell them more than one thing, then you know it leads to cognitive dissonance, we can't focus, and we end up getting into trouble. And you know, particularly when you've got somebody who is under a lot of stress on the ski slope, is completely freaking out, how you help them calm down and stay focused is something that I use you know, very frequently in my consulting work because you know, quite often I'm being brought into organizations where either you've got individuals who've got major challenges, either professional ones or personal ones, or you've got organizations where things are really tough. And that ability just to help them stay calm and focus on the critical things that are going to drive their success is something that I hope would be one of the uh, things that clients would say is valuable about using me as a consultant. So speaking of that, let's go back to London. Let's say I, I bump into you at a pub, we're having a pint, and I ask you, hey, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm an organizational consultant. And my next question is, what do you do? It's fascinating. I think every parent should ask their kids how they describe their job. It's fascinating. I've done this with my daughters at 13 and 15 at the moment. I've done this with them. And, you know, I ask them, you know, what uh, their friends' parents do just because I'm fascinated about it. And there's a wonderful book by Justine Garda called Sophie's World. It's about explaining philosophy to a 14-year-old. And Justine Garda's insight, which I think is profound, is if you can't explain something to a 14-year-old, you don't understand it. So the way I would describe it to you, if we're in a pub and uh, maybe after a few drinks, the, uh, maybe the, uh, uh, the actual level gets down to a 14-year-old level, I, I don't know. The way I describe it to my daughters is very much in terms here, which is I help people do the things that they should be doing rather than the things that they have done. Because you know, we get into what uh, Sigmund Freud called repetition compulsion. 
all of us have patterns of behavior that we've learned and you know we can survive but are they really the behaviors that are going to allow us to be successful in the future and there's a key insight here which is the behaviors that have made you successful so far in your career are not going to be sufficient as you get more senior be it rising up the hierarchy in a law firm as the organization gets more complicated you deal with different clients and so being open to new ideas and being open to learning having what uh, the jargon these days Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset is something that is absolutely critical. So the way I describe it to my girls is I help people in organizations do the things that they should be doing because often they're not doing it. And it's a fascinating experience. I, I don't know if this fits with you, Chad, but organizations are really mad places. <laughs> I, I was sent away to boarding school when I was seven, which was not a, a joyful experience. And I remember just thinking, this is such a mad place. And we were talking about madmen before, and organizations can feel pretty strange places because you can get a whole bunch of really smart people and you put them together in an organization and they don't always behave in very smart ways. And in fact, this is one of the most consistent findings in social psychology. You can get really smart people together and they end up doing really dumb things, both individually because of the group environment we're in, which can uh, sort of make us behave in strange ways, but also organizationally. Is that because they want to be accepted and they don't want to be seen as an outlier or they want to go against the grain? There's a whole bunch of stuff there. The key thing probably is what we call conformity right. pressure. So we like to think that we are what we call agents, that we are consciously, rationally choosing in this situation, I am choosing how I behave and this is how I choose to behave. The reality is completely different. In fact, uh, studies would suggest about 60 to 70% of our behavior is based on our situation, is contextual. And only about 30% or a bit more maybe is based on who we are. So it is very, very true. And it's very easy to show it in a bunch of studies that people conform to the environment they're in. And that could be a healthy environment. It could be a healthy environment. It could be a high-risk environment. It could be a low-risk environment. But we adapt to the environment we're in very powerfully. And uh, there's always a pressure to fit in. And so Solomon asked did some famous study from the 1950s where he got six people together in a room. Five of them were actors and only one person was a real participant. And uh, he showed them three lines and then asked them, when he showed them a fourth line, uh, which of the three was similar in length to that new line. And they start off and, you know, all the group are giving the right answers, but then they start giving the wrong answers. And what you find is the vast majority of people will really quite quickly start conforming and mm -hmm. giving the wrong answers. And they've done all sorts of studies on this. One of the famous ones is in elevators, where you get a bunch of actors in an elevator, and they all face the same way. And when somebody gets in, they will face the same way, whatever way it is. Even if they face the rear? No, even more than that, Chad. What then happens is they said, okay, well, that was crazy. So, yeah, exactly, they face the rear. And if you get in and they're all facing the rear, then you will almost certainly face the rear. But then what they did is said, okay, let's push this. And this is sort of what we call psychologists having fun. So halfway up between the floors, all of the actors will literally turn 90 degrees in sequence. And <laughs> there's all sorts of cameras and they're used on this over the years. And, you know, people will literally move 90 degrees just to fit in with what everyone else is doing. So it is really quite uh, dramatic how much we think we're agents, that we think we're in control. But actually, we're just conforming to our environment. And um, again, I think in the legal world, because lawyers have a very important role in society, 
and are often dealing with you know with big important things uh, where people either individually or organizationally have got a lot of pressure on them there is this sense of you, you know you need to have this professional identity you need to behave in a lawyer like uh, way it can often be quite impersonal and uh, uh, and formal and uh, as a result you can fall to that and uh, if you're not careful you can slightly lose who you are in that professional identity at some point you still have your consulting practice. You've left the London Business School. You start working at Kellogg up at Northwestern. How did that come about? So four and a half years ago, my wife and I decided to move to the U.S. for family and lifestyle reasons. Um, my wife's from the Midwest, and uh, we thought it'd be great for the family. And um, so moved to the city where my wife was born and grew up and where we got married, which is Columbus, Ohio, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful city. But was not great for my career. And so uh, having been there, and uh, I was still traveling a lot for my consulting work, but then COVID hit, and obviously I couldn't travel. And then the dean of Kellogg, who uh, is a fantastic academic called uh, Francesca Cornelli, uh, and an inspirational leader who I've known for 24 years. She was number two at London Business School for many years. She called me and said, hey, Richard, I need you here at Kellogg. So that's when I started teaching at Kellogg, initially or virtually for the first 10 months. Uh, and since then, uh, I've been a full-time member of faculty here, and it has just been a truly wonderful experience. This is just, you know, a joyful place to work. It's a beautiful campus, beautiful building on the shores of Lake Michigan. But more profoundly, the culture of this is rooted in these really profoundly inspiring Midwest values of community and collaboration. And it's a truly healthy environment. It's just such a privilege being part of this uh, community. When we come back in just a moment, Professor Jolly tells us about his consulting practice and how he helps improve law firms and legal departments both at the individual and the organizational level. He also explains why in this day and age, it might be better to be a fox rather than a hedgehog. That's because foxes more easily adapt to changing environments. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there, too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We'll go back to my conversation with Professor Richard Jolly in just a second. But before we do, like I always do, I want to let you know if you go to tlpodcast.com, there's an episode page for this episode and all of our other episodes with links to more information about our guests and the stuff we talk about. Also, if you're a fan of the podcast, number one, thanks for listening. But if I could ask a favor, tell a friend about the podcast or maybe even give us a favorable review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Richard Jolly of the consultancy Stokes Jolly and of Northwestern University. Let's talk about law firms. Like, there's two things I think you do. You do executive coaching and consulting. 
you also do organizational consulting. Yeah. So specifically with a focus on legal, explain those. What are the differences there? What are you doing? What are you trying to improve? How are you helping? Well, the first thing is I love working with lawyers. It's my favorite group to work with because if I can put it bluntly, yeah, that's gonna be, they're a I'm going to tweet that. I'm gonna, that's the takeaway here. Your favorite group. Yeah. Uh, my favorite group, because they are a nightmare. <laughs> that's the full tweet right there. That's the full tweet, yeah. Because firstly, I mentioned before, if, if they don't see you as credible, then they'll just switch off and literally get their phones out or in a session, they'll get their laptop out. And I've seen that happen. In fact, a colleague of mine, when I was at London Business School, running a program for a client of mine, a magic circle firm, this is one of the smartest guys I know. And he was time he was my subject area chair. And uh, he was doing the day before me, and then I was following him. And I, I bumped into him and on the way to the uh, classroom. I said, oh, how did it go yesterday? He said, Richard, not good. He said, I was doing my usual stuff about uh, influence and decision-making, and they kept asking me these questions. And as they were asking me these questions, I realized, yeah, you're right. I don't really believe this stuff anymore. And so I told them, yeah, you're, I really, I'm not going to teach this stuff again because you know, I think you're... So to take one of the smartest people I know, and in real time, persuade them that they're wrong and you're right is something I've never seen ever happen before. So the thing about lawyers is they are without doubt the smartest people I work with. There's cognitive uh, capability and uh, they're clearly very good at arguing, particularly obviously uh, litigators. They're typically very, very well paid. And as a friend of mine says, you know, telling a bunch of millionaires that they're doing things wrong is never a good <laughs> conversation, which means that they are world-class at resisting change. What makes them resistant to change specifically? So there's two things. Psychologically, the two most consistent ways that lawyers are different to everyone else is, number one, high skepticism. You know, we want lawyers who are worried, thinking of all the things that could go wrong. When you're contracting, you need to think about all the scenarios uh, that could go wrong and how we'd handle them and to put that into the contract. So you need that rather anxious personality. And, you know, the profile for lawyers is often defined as, you know, underconfident overachievers or anxious overachievers. And I think that is very profound. So the first thing here is that uh, anxiety. The second thing is what we call low long-term resilience. In other words, they don't like change. What's been striking to me, particularly uh, recently in the last uh, couple of years, is because I you know, do a lot of work with law firms and facilitate legal conferences and um, you know, moderate panels. And every law firm I work with, particularly here in the U.S., They've just had, in 2022, their best ever year. In fact, very often the second best year was 2021. And uh, every partner pretty much is saying, I'm incredibly busy. My pipeline of future matters is uh, great. I'm working, you know, my, doing great billable hours. Everything is going well. So from their point of view, there's no sort of worry there because everything is stable. But when you talk to people running law firms, they say, Richard, these are transformational times. We need to do things radically different to how we do in the past for a whole bunch of reasons. And again, we can touch on some of those. And so we need to transform. But uh, all the partners are saying, no, 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 everything's great. I don't want any change. We don't need to change. So there's a real tension here between the specific individual experience and perspective of, uh, of a partner and the organizational perspective. So what I love working with law firms is if you can get a law firm to embrace meaningful change, in my world, you can do almost anything. So let me ask you, though, you say it's transformative, which I agree. And I think law firms should be doing stuff differently via tech, via workflows, via collaborate, whatever, whatever it is. But not a bad point if you're a partner. If it ain't broke, why fix it? If I, if I can get a thousand bucks an hour, two thousand bucks an hour, 
and the client's still coming back and I'm having the best year ever, what needs to transform and why? So, but this is the point is this low long-term resilience. Let's focus on the long-term because in the short term, a pipeline of future matters is really all that most partners are really concerned about. I'm very good at what I do. I'm very experienced. Clients love my work. I'm valued and everything is going great. The problem is that if you look longer term, then uh, in the words of Wayne Gretzky, obviously the, uh, the great uh, hockey player, you know, when he was asked by a journalist, how come he scored so many goals? His famous answer was, well, everyone else skates to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck will be. And if you're running a law firm, you need to focus on where the puck will be, not where the puck is. And so in terms of uh, these big uh, changes, there's so many of them. And in fact, I was in uh, New York last week moderating a conference about the role of AI and how it's going to affect the legal profession. And what was absolutely clear is that this is not one of those other things that um, is going to be a fad or a fashion. What we're seeing right now is something that is fundamentally going to change the work of every law firm and is going to affect most partners. So a recent study by Goldman Sachs said that 80% of all the tasks we do, 50% of them can be done by technology. So anything that's repetitive, for example, in the legal world, can now be done better by technology. And I'm sure you've seen that um, right now, the uh, was it the New York bar exams? Sort of uh, the AI can actually get you through the bar exam and get you in the top 10% of the uh, students. You know, here at Kellogg, we are absolutely having to radically shift how we engage with students, how we assess them. Because I put every exam question and every assignment that I do into ChatGPT. Particularly now we've got ChatGPT4. And this is just the open source version, let alone, you know, the ones that law firms are now working with to do proprietary confidential firewall work, but just simply open source uh, AI. And uh, it got an A every single time. It was in the top half of the class, just in 15 seconds, putting into AI. So the impact in the legal profession is going to be so profound. So there's all of that side of things. There is, I think, greater power amongst clients, be it uh, CFOs, GCs, or whoever, bringing more house in work, building up the in-house uh, legal function, and being more demanding. Not necessarily demanding on price uh, at the moment, that doesn't seem to be the key thing, but certainly demanding in terms of a range of things. Firstly, demanding that uh, law firms reflect the diversity that they have and uh, they seek internally in their organization. And that is a big problem for law firms. But more demanding in terms of you know who they want on the work, how they want it to work, how they want to pay. So obviously, fixed fee agreements, AFAs, this whole world is something that clients are demanding, or certainly looking for more certainty and more transparency. And of course, using uh, ALSPs for a whole bunch of work that you know traditional law firms never even hear about. And so I think that the pressure there on law firms is rising. But there's one really important point I want to add to this, Chad, which is one of the things that uh, is a problem for these partners who have this big pipeline of matters is, I think, perhaps the most profound problem. This is the generation of attorneys entering the legal profession. So we did a study uh, recently where we found that people in their 20s assume they won't stay with the same organization for more than three years at any point in their career. And that is a new phenomenon. And uh, I was talking to the head of a law firm recently, said, Richard, I know this. They are leaving after three years. 
The problem, it takes six years of us investing in a trainee before they become profitable. And so I think there's a fundamental pipeline issue here of talent uh, into the uh, law firm. Six years. I mean, I've been there. <laughs> Does it really take six years? I, you know, well, I, I don't know. It takes time to train, though. It takes time to train. Exactly right. And if they're leaving, and uh, then you have a problem here because, you know, we have a leverage model here, but we keep the best trainees and then promote them to associate and we keep the best associates, promote them to senior associate, keep the best associates, promote them to partner and, you know, uh, give them some uh, equity. And uh, that is the leverage model. And the other statistic from the study that was very shocking to me is 72% of these young people said they don't aspire to be like their senior managers. And this is the issue. So, but by the way, particularly more diverse trainees. So here is the key issue. Uh, they're looking at people above them and saying, I don't want to be a partner here. I don't want anything about your lifestyle. You're a workaholic. Uh, you don't spend enough time with your families and friends. You don't have any interest outside of your work. All you seem to do is work. And I want to have a life. And so they don't see partners as role models. So what this means is that if we're going to retain, our, particularly our mid-career lawyers, and particularly the more diverse lawyers, they're demanding that they actually have a life rather than just uh, work. So the main reason I would argue that partners are working so many bull hours right now is they're actually taking the work that was being done by associates, senior associates, and they're doing it themselves. Because otherwise, they're going to lose them. But let's talk about that, though. So there's that one issue there that tech is changing. The way young lawyers think about their career and what it means is changing. So if I'm, you know, a partner, I'm the head of Dewey Cheatham and Howe, and I hire you because I want you to come in and consult an organization, what are the three key issues that we need to focus on and how do we get there? Keeping your eye on the future, because we opened up this part of the conversation with, I'm a partner, I'm making $1,000 an hour, why do I need to change? But you're saying, well, that's yeah. short-sighted. So what are the three things law firms need to do not to be short-sighted? One of the key challenges for me here is that law firms are getting more complex. They're getting more complex because we've got people who are working from home part-time, so virtual hybrid working. And it's not just that, you know, I'm not in the studio, here we are doing this uh, virtually today. So it's not just that it's nice to have them in the office. One of the key issues is an issue around culture. So I was interviewing a bunch of attorneys in a law firm recently, and one of the associates said, Richard, I've only been here three or four months, and the only difference from my previous uh, law firm is that uh, there's a different logo on my laptop. <laughs> and I think there's a real issue here about culture. And I would argue uh, that uh, the best law firms are not simply the ones with lots of really smart lawyers. The best law firms are the ones where we have this strong sense of culture. And so you and I can think of various law firms around the world, and you say the law firm, and you absolutely know what kind of person is going to thrive there, what they're good at, because they have a very distinctive culture. As we work in a more complex way, we're losing that clear sense of identity. And, uh, you know, you may have people who literally have never been to the right. office in, uh, in some organizations. So, for example, when I started here at Kellogg almost three years ago, for the first 10 months, I never came to our campus. It was Everything was done remotely. And it was a very strange experience to join a new academic institution. But that was because you started during COVID times, correct? I started yeah. during yeah. COVID, exactly. But clearly, it's not as if we're going to go back to you know the good old days, you might call it, or business as usual. 
we're all just uh, back in the office the whole time. So every law firm is wrestling with exactly this issue. And uh, the simple answer about how firms need to manage this is you've got to be flexible. It's not, you know, one, three, one or any sort of simple formula here. You've got to actually be flexible here because the critical thing is culture isn't simply around identity and, and uh, how we're perceived by potential clients. Culture is it's how we do things around here. And the critical thing uh, that I want to pick up on this is around informal learning. So the reason that so many junior mid-career lawyers are leaving is they don't feel as if they're really learning a lot. Because the whole thing of uh, you know, listening in uh, to the partner when they're on the, uh, on the phone to a client, someone saying, hey, uh, you know, just come in and sit on this meeting, it'd be useful for you. Uh, or even just you know, having a chat in a taxi or over lunch after a client meeting. All of that informal learning and mentoring is absolutely critical to your continuing professional development. And that is something that is an absolute crisis right now. So to be a partner today is a much more complicated role where you've actually got to spend more time focusing on really mentoring and developing your junior attorneys. And uh, the problem is it's not even simply a question of attorneys versus business professionals, because now, particularly as we talked about with uh, artificial intelligence, uh, the whole thing of having certain people, i.e. the attorneys who are fee generating and the others who are uh, not, is it's not as simple. There are a number of law firms I work with where they've got some very, very profitable revenue streams that uh, are led by non-attorneys. You talk about culture, not only culture of young lawyers and how they want to work and adapting to that, but seems to me, based on a lot of stuff we talked about, lawyers being, you know, a personality trait is they're, they're resistant to change. The culture also has to change to adapt to acceptance of technology, adapt to working with allied professionals that are doing kind of legal adjacent work that, that benefits the firm. It's interesting that, Chad, you said that they have to. And the answer is, if you are a senior attorney listening to this, you go, yeah, I don't have to. Because here's the problem. And this is why I find it so fascinating at an organizational level in the legal profession is every law firm has a core group of people on the management team, the executive committee, whatever, who are responsible for broader interests of the firm. And um, when you speak to these people, they all acknowledge that the world is changing and that we need to adapt and around technology, around diversity, around all sorts of things. But yet, all of these things are almost by definition things that they didn't really develop throughout their career because they grew up in a different world. We were talking about Mad Men before, and the advertising industry is another one where every senior person advertising did not grow up in a world of big data and data analytics and you know, in a much more quantitative approach to advertising, it was Mad Men, uh, as we saw on the TV That's series. a great, great analogy there, because in some ways, old school advertising is similar to old school law, because it's your gut. Is the consumer going to agree with that and buy that? Is the jury going to buy that? Yeah, that's, inter that's an interesting analogy. Exactly. And so at the top of a law firm, you've got the executive committee members, and um, they all know we need to change, but they know that they're not expert at all these areas. And so there is always a temptation. I'm not saying everyone, every law firm does this. There's always that temptation to say, yes, yes, super important, super important, and then do nothing. And basically, you know, you're three years away from retirement. You know that you can carry on doing all the things you know and are good at and uh, basically kick the can down the road for the next group coming through to address. So there was a famous paper published just over 70 years ago by a philosopher called Isaiah Berlin. And then he said there are two types of people in the world. 
and I think this is very true for the legal profession, and he used an animal metaphor for each of these types of people. He says, there are some people there who are hedgehogs, and a hedgehog has one very brilliant defensive strategy. If it's attacked, it curls into a ball, and this has allowed it to survive and thrive for millennia. And so in terms of uh, our careers and the legal profession, these are the subject matter experts who spent years and years developing this incredible depth of expertise in one area. The problem is that in our modern world, hedgehogs and technology, uh, hedgehogs crossing roads doesn't always, we say, uh, end well for the hedgehog. And so the other type of animal is something that we increasingly need in the legal profession. And the animal that uh, Berlin used for this was the fox. Because a fox is agile, to use the jargon of the day. It's able to adapt to very different environments. You have, obviously, in the countryside, you have the Arctic fox uh, hunting in the Arctic Circle. You have the desert fox in some of the most arid desert conditions on the planet. And uh, when I was in London, we had a huge urban fox population. So foxes are able to adapt to environments. And the challenge here is that traditional law firms are full of brilliant hedgehogs. But this is my point, is that if we need to adapt, if we need to be foxes, then I think that we're already starting to see that as the pandemic has accelerated the pace of change, there are some law firms that are looking increasingly outdated, even though they have a brilliant track record, and other firms are able to embrace these changes more powerfully. And if you're a new startup law firm that's only you know five, six years old, then typically those are the ones that find it easy to be fox-like because they were the founders were diverse, they're open to technology, but if you're a more traditional, larger law firm, then these are very profound challenges about how can we actually be open to these changes. And that's the work where I hope I can be helpful to many of these law firms that I work with. Richard, appreciate your time. If people want to get a hold of you, learn more about your practice, learn more about your teaching, where do you want them to go? Simple thing is website stokesjolly.com. And uh, if you look up Richard Jolly on uh, Google search, You'll take the website and also uh, to Kellogg as well, but emails are available there. So um, it's always a pleasure. And if I can be helpful, if anyone has any questions or advice uh, they're seeking, it's always great to uh, connect to people in the profession. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.